good to go? All right. Um, if I hadn't had the pleasure of meeting you quite yet, my name is John. I serve Mission Church as the, the lead pastor, and I'm excited and honored to be with you this morning, especially in this context as we continue our current sermon series to the book of Psalms entitled An Exile's Prayer Book. And the reason why we called this series An Exile's Prayer Book is because the Psalms served as a prayer book to the people of God during their years in exile, and as you and I are also living in exile today, awaiting for Jesus' return, the Psalms serve us in the same way as a prayer book. Now, if you haven't already, please open up your Bible to Psalm chapter 29. And while you're turning there, I just wanted to share with you a, a little bit of a, an announcement. You see, you may have noticed uh, my friend Bradley playing guitar this morning, and I just wanted to say thank you to Bradley and your family for being here. And the reason why he came today is because in a couple weeks, I'm going to be taking some time off, and Bradley's going to lead us in worship. And, um, and so he wanted to come and, and uh, hang out with me today and hang out with you guys. But I just want to say thank you to your, your whole family for being here and, and just being a good friend and caring for me and, his, and Mission Church as well. So I just wanted you guys to know what was going on. So that's what's happening. Anyways, Psalm 29. You there? All right, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord from Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in splendor, in the splendor of His holiness. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The, glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water, the voice of the Lord in power, the voice of the Lord in splendor, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, the voice of the Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. In His temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned King forever. The Lord gives His people strength. The Lord blesses His people with peace. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you join me as we get started? We'll, let's take a moment to pray together. God, we love You and thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the opportunity that we have to sit underneath the counsel of Your Word and the gift that You've given us um, in the church. The opportunity we have to gather this morning as brothers and sisters to, to sing songs of good news, to, to hear the Word of good news, to be encouraged and equipped to leave here today on mission, to gather in fellowship around the Lord's table. We thank You for the gift that You've given to us and all those things. We pray, Lord, that now that You would soften our hearts to the greater understanding of the Gospel, that we would know You more. This text gives us a greater insight into Your character. And God, we can only properly understand the Gospel when we have a greater sense of who You are based upon who You say You are. And so God, would You help us to, to have a greater understanding of this text this morning. I pray, Lord, that You would stir our affections for Christ away from the things of the world and the things that are so uh, tempting and thrown at us in culture and society, and that we would be, um, that our hearts would be renewed today 
And we love you and we thank you. I pray the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer. Love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 29 is a much neglected psalm. As you read, as we read through it, there's a lot of imagery and it's very poetic. In fact, due to its poetic nature and ancient imagery, it can be difficult to understand this text. However, my goal this morning is to help make sense of Psalm 29, both practically and relationally, especially regarding the point and the purpose of our lives. What are we here for? What is our purpose in life? And the challenge given to us by the psalmist in Psalm 29 is he's going to uh, challenge us to acknowledge with our minds and acknowledge with our hearts our God who is awesome in power and sovereign in nature. Tell me, what, what are you living for? If you were to stand back and, and take a, a, uh, just assess your life from a thousand foot view, what would you say you're living for? This is an important question to consider for all of us. We are all living for something. We're all pursuing after one thing or another. We all have a chief pursuit and purpose in life which governs our thoughts. It influences our actions. It is the primary filter through which we run every decision and our priorities. It is the predominant driving reason behind why it is we do what we do in life. Now, if you were to go out and stand on the street and randomly ask a, a, a few people, what is your purpose in life? Well, you would definitely get a variety of answers, such as money, happiness, pleasure, family, status, freedom, security. These are all things that would top the list. And if we were honest, I believe that some of those answers may even describe our point and purpose in our own lives. And so this morning, I'm going to propose to you that there is one reason, one main purpose for which each of us exist. You see, you and I were created to worship and to bring glory to God. Now, the question is begging to be asked. What is glory? What does it mean to give God glory? What is God's glory? You see, the Bible be- speaks of God's glory, and, it, and when it does, it points us to God's greatness, His beauty, the perfection of all that God is. In everything that God is and in everything that God does, He is gloriously great, gloriously beautiful, gloriously perfect. He is beyond our ability to understand and estimate, describe the staggering truth of the universe is that there is one who exists, who is the greatest, the most beautiful, the most perfect in every way. God alone stands in the vast universe is the only one who is worthy of our attention, who is worthy of our surrender, who is worthy of our worship, who is worthy of the love of every human heart. You see, our God, He has no rival. Now this word glory is translated from the Hebrew word kavod, which literally means heavy or weighty. So to give someone glory is to give weight to someone. To give someone glory is to to honor them. To give them, uh, grant them some sort of, of position or respect of authority in your life. It speaks to the importance of someone. And as we speak of God's glory, it is equal to speaking about His weightiness, His holiness, 
His sovereignty, His righteousness and His goodness and His grace and His truth, His mercy. To speak of God's glory is to proclaim His importance as we praise Him and worship Him. Now Psalm 29 is helpful to us in understanding God's glory as it describes God's glory and describes God, the power of God, like a raging storm. In fact, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon once wrote, this psalm is meant to express the glory of God as heard in the pealing thunder and seen in a tornado. The verses march to the tune of thunderbolts. God reveals His majesty, His power and glory in the furious wind, the pelting rain, the blinding flashes of lightning, and the deafening thunder and the violent storm. Which, to be honest, as I read this in preparation for this morning, this picture of God's power is, well, it's kind of disturbing. Why would David compare the voice of the Lord to a destructive and violent storm? Well, the fact of the matter is, the God that we serve, if the God that we serve um, he's not, the God we serve is not a tame God. He's not a puny God. Let's put it that way. He's not a God that we could lead around on a leash, do our bidding. Rather, the God of glory, the text says, thunders. You see, the untamed power of God is like the mightiest of storms. I'm reminded of what A.W. Tozer once said. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So who is God to you? Well, this morning David's going to give us a glimpse of who God is, not based on who He is to us, but based on who He says He is in His Word. And to, be, uh, and to best understand our text, let's consider God's glory and our response to God's glory and Psalm 29's um, expression of these things through three main movements. One, the call. Two, the storm. And three, the calm. The call, the storm, and the calm. Number one, the call. The pressures and the expectations that surrounded the king are enormous, overwhelming. And so to relieve stress, to gain a greater perspective, a renewed perspective, imagine with me that David steps out and begins to go for a walk through the beautiful countryside of Israel. And as he looked toward the north, he noticed out of the Mediterranean Sea, over the coastal plains, thunderclouds are coming in. And as they start moving south towards him, the clouds begin to grow in size and in power. They begin to get darker and darker. And suddenly, he finds himself caught in the midst of an incredible display of lightning and thunder and rain and wind. The energy and the intensity of the storm was breathtaking. And in that moment, David quickly grabbed his riding utensil as he was reminded of how small he truly was and how great God truly is. And he quickly began to pen these words, this song. Look at verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings... This phrase, heavenly beings, is a reference to the pagan gods at the time, specifically the idols worshipped by Israel's neighbors. Essentially, David is instructing these false gods, these idols, to bow down to the one and true God, the only God, Yahweh, to bow down and worship Him. See, David is calling out these foreign gods and he's putting them in their place. And by calling out these foreign gods, David is really calling out the idolatrous 
and wavering and wayward people of Israel. And he's instructing them, turn from your idolatry and turn back to the only one true God and worship Him. The people of Israel were tempted to worship idols over and over and over again. If you know the story and the narrative through the Old Testament, they were constantly turning back away from God and to the idols. And so David is using language that is very similar to the ancient Canaanite poetry that they would have been familiar with. For example... The idol, Baal, that was worshipped at the time, he was often described as riding on clouds. He's pictured with a lightning bolt in his hand. And so David is using language and he's using forms of Canaanite worship to show that God is far superior to the idols that Israel was so tempted to turn to, to worship. So David's speaking to Israel. He's addressing these foreign idols false gods in the style of Canaanite poetry, and he does so, he tells them. What does he tell them to do in verse 1? He says, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe, or attribute, or give. I I, I understand that ascribe is not necessarily a word that we use in our normal day language, right? So he's saying give, or attribute to the Lord, glory and strength. He tells them, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in splendor of His holiness. Again, David is instructing Israel to turn from worshiping idols and worship God alone. Now the question is, if God is so much more glorious, if God is so much more majestic and awesome and powerful, why do we need to be commanded to worship Him and and not worship lesser things? Well, the answer is sin. It's sin. Sin has done something dangerous to the human heart, and all of us have been impacted by it. Each and every human heart within us, there's what we would call a glory war. And whatever glory rules your heart will ultimately set the agenda for the purpose of how, like, set the agenda for how you live your life, the purpose of your life, the aim and the goal of your life. And sin does two things to us. First thing that sin does to us is it blinds us. More specifically, sin blinds us to God's glory. Isaiah 6 tells us that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Yet the majority of people live each day blinded to the glory of God that surrounds them. So sin blinds us and sin also confuses us. Sin causes you to replace the glory of God with other glories. Lesser glories. And they end up being the Lord of your life. These lesser glories become the filter through which we make our decisions, the actions that we take, and even the words that we speak. But David here is pointing us to the only glory that will only fully satisfy us. You see, anything and everything else will leave us empty, will leave us wanting. They will ultimately addict us. Leaving us and forcing us to go back again and again and again, hoping that we'll be satisfied. Leaving us never satisfied, hoping that we will will be fulfilled only to be let down over and over and over again. You see, these false gods, these false empty wells, these lesser glories will ultimately leave us empty, anxious, and confused. And the reason why they can't satisfy us is because they are not the thing that we're supposed to be living for. Tell me, what glory right now is commanding your heart? 
Is it the glory of financial success? Is it the glory of new possessions? The glory of the affection or the respect of a certain person? Is it the glory of physical beauty or or physical health? Is it the glory of power? The glory of control? Listen to me, none of those things will ever satisfy you. They will always leave you wanting. They are an empty well. Only God is able to satisfy the longings of your heart. And this is why David instructs us and he commands us to run to God, to worship God alone, because sin has blinded us and sin has confused our hearts. Therefore, we must be commanded to turn from these lesser glories and to ascribe or attribute and give glory to God alone, for he is the only one truly worthy of our worship and our praise, and he is the only one who will fully satisfy the longings of our hearts. So David, knowing this, knowing that we're commanded to seek and to live in light of the glory of God, with this storm on the horizon, David warns us. He warns us to acknowledge that God alone is impressive. God alone is important and weighty and glorious, and He essentially gives us a call to worship. Just like we did this morning before we sang and we read from Psalm 95, David here is giving us a call to worship. Look back at verse 2. He says, worship the Lord in splendor, in the splendor of His holiness. A better translation would be, worship the Lord for the splendor of His holiness. If you look at the original text, this is a, a, a better translation. Worship the Lord for the splendor of His holiness. The splendor of a king in His holiness is the visual uh, splendor of a king who comes down wrapped in finest robes and with all the expensive and amazing jewelry on the rings and the necklaces and the crown, he is wrapped in glory when the Lord appears in magnificent splendor and glory. He comes not necessarily wrapped in those fine robes, but he comes wrapped in power, which leads us to our second movement, number two, the storm. You guys doing okay? Yeah? All right. One of the things I miss about growing up in the middle of the country, the, one of the, I guess the things I, I look and long for the most are the, the storms, the thunderstorms. Um, I remember sitting out in the middle of the, the country and, and watching these storms roll in just like David describes here. I remember sitting on the back patio one year and watching the lightning and listening to the thunder and, and the bang and the flash growing closer and closer and closer together until that moment as I was sitting on the back patio, the lightning actually struck the ground in our backyard and it was terrifying, it was deafening, it was blinding, it was the loudest thing I've ever heard and it was also the most awesome thing I've ever seen. It was awesome and I remember the ground shaking, the house shaking, the windows rattling and I... It was impressive. I also remember growing up hearing the sound of the tornado sirens blaring every year. We lived right next to the water tower where the sirens were located. And every year these sirens would go off warning that a tornado is predicted to touch the ground. And one year I remember actually seeing the tornado touch the ground and start tearing through the town. And I remember having to lay in a bathtub covered by a mattress for protection, which I always wondered, was that really going to work? I always question it. I never, it never got me. And so I just laid there in a tub with a mattress on me, but I always wondered, is this really going to work as a kid? And I was like, this seems silly to me. Anyways, I guess that's what you do, and that's what we did. Well, when I moved to Las Vegas in 1998, the monsoon season hit, so I was told, right? Hey, get ready, we're going to have a monsoon season. And I was pumped. 
I was excited. I was looking forward to this. It rained for two minutes and one crack of thunder, right? That's our monsoon season. However, the water that ran off the mountain over the dry ground completely flooded and destroyed everything in its path. The ground is so dry and dense that it does not absorb it. And the result was destruction. In fact, my friend living in the neighborhood down from me, his whole house was flooded from the water that came off the mountain. And so, it destroyed. The water is powerful. And Psalm 29 is written after a storm like these. The psalmist is using this image of the storm to describe the voice of the Lord. And as we will see, David gives us a powerful description in these verses of the thunder and the lightning and the earth shaking. In verses 3-10, through David here is going to argue that God alone is truly glorious. In fact, we will only understand what glory really is when we look at who God is and what God does. And it's in that moment when we see God's glory that the only appropriate response is worship and surrender. Look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. When weather systems move across the sea, storms grow more ferocious in power. They feed on moisture. Hurricanes grow as the sun evaporates. Moisture lifts the humid air into the atmosphere, resulting in high winds and dangerous electrical storms and in a ferocious, rough sea. The ocean is powerful. I don't know if you've ever gone and went swimming in the ocean, but it can be dangerous. I remember swimming out on, in the Pacific Ocean and, and trying to body surf. I, it was an attempt because and, and it, it wasn't successful, at, in, to say the least. I was unsuccessful, but the current grabbed me, pulled me under, throwing me against the ocean floor. I remember feeling the pressure of the water pushing against me and and feeling helpless as my head went flying against the sand. I had no ability to fight against the power of the ocean. I was at its mercy. Water can do some damage. Whether it's the current of the ocean or a river that carves out a canyon or a broken pipe in your house, water is powerful and destroys things. And as David describes this powerfully destructive storm, he's pointing out the fact that God is to be worshipped for the glory of His power. For the glory of His splendor. David's also tapping into a cultural context of his day. See, when the original audience heard or sung the psalm, they would have immediately understood that David was drawing from the imagery and the beliefs of the neighboring countries as we mentioned a moment ago. They would have been familiar with the Canaanite stories that taught that the Mediterranean Sea was the battleground between Yam, the god of sea and chaos, and Baal, the god of storms and thunder. And so David is using familiar language. He's using familiar image and metaphor. He's essentially taking the Canaanite expressions, beliefs, and worldview, and he's flipping them upside down. He uses their language to affirm that there's no one else that is more powerful than God alone. In fact, there's no other God that that could speak and has spoken the world into existence. He alone is in control. He alone rules it all. He alone is sovereign over nature. God is above. He is beyond. He is in control of everything. David is pointing to the truth that behind the what, there's a who. 
Behind the glory and the terror of nature, there's a glorious God who is sovereign over the earth. God who displays His glory over all creation as His voice thunders in triumph. Look at verse 5. David continues with this imagery. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. Now the cedars of Lebanon were known throughout the ancient Near East as the most spectacular trees in the region. They were massive. They were gigantic. The wood was strong. In fact, Solomon would later use these trees to build the temple. If you've ever been to the Redwood National Park in California, then you have an idea of the sheer massiveness of these cedar trees in Lebanon. These trees are so highly regarded even today that the Lebanese flag has one of these cedar trees on it. But David says that these tall, massive, and majestic trees, they snap like matchsticks under the sound of God's voice. What power. What glory. The voice of the Lord thunders. The voice of the Lord is fierce and overpowers and uproots and snaps these majestic trees, breaking them into pieces. And also, verse 6, He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. What in the world does that mean? I'm just kidding. I got you. (laughs) Well, Syrian is another name for Mount Hermon. In reference here to Lebanon, in verse 6, is a reference to Mount Lebanon. And so David is referencing in this text two mighty mountain regions. Mount Hermon, Mount Lebanon. And so this phrase, he makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. He's comparing the voice of the Lord to an earthquake that shakes these two mighty and majestic mountain ranges. And then verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. In other words, God is, is not only more powerful and glorious than the waters of the sea. He is not only the sound of His voice so powerful that it snaps these massive cedars in half like matchsticks and He shakes the ground of the largest mountain, but He fills the earth with the most powerful and the most dangerous lightning storms Not only that, but when he speaks, and this one you'll get a kick out of, verse 9, he even even makes the deer go into premature labor. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth, strips the woodlands bare. In the temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned King forever. The storm was knocking down everything in its path. It was terrifying. Powerful and awesome. Tell me, how much more powerful and awesome is the one who controls that storm? Who sends that storm? Think about it. Everything in Psalm 29 here is being attributed to God's voice. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord spoke the world into being. The voice of the Lord speaks life into dead people. The voice of the Lord speaks spiritual life into us. The voice of the Lord reveals the deepest mysteries of the universe in His Word. The voice of the Lord is powerful and glorious. And for an Israelite who would have known the Bible, would have knew that this repetition of God's voice here in Psalm 29, their mind would have immediately gone back to the repeated power of God's Word in creation in Genesis chapter 1. 
Six times in Genesis chapter 1, God, it says, that, and God said, and God said, once for each day of creation, God spoke the universe into existence. The power of God's voice brought order out of chaos. Genesis 1 tells us He spoke with creative power over the world. And then Psalm 29 tells us that He can also speak with destructive power. The terrifying power of God's voice also recalls the covenant that God spoke at Mount Sinai in Exodus. When God came down to give the law, the people were overwhelmed. When they heard the voice of the Lord that spoke to them, look at Exodus 19, it'll be up on the screen. Moses writes, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The experience of God's presence here in Exodus Exodus 19 is strikingly similar to God's presence as recorded in Psalm 29. Fire, thunder, an earthquake that shook mountains. As you can imagine, the experience in Exodus 19 was extremely overwhelming. But it continues. It doesn't stop there. Exodus 20 tells us that all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the ram's horn and the mountains surrounded by smoke. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. They told Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. Don't let God speak to us because we're going to die. No other nation had heard God speak like this. But the powerful voice of the Lord at Sinai was ultimately pointing forward to Jesus who Himself is the Word of God. When Jesus came into the world, the Apostle John writes in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God spoke to us powerfully through Jesus Christ. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 1, long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word, Jesus. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, where this morning, ladies and gentlemen, He is ruling and He is reigning. As the Word of God, Jesus spoke with power over the world in this world. He healed the sick. He calmed the sea. He casted out demons by the command of His voice. Jesus, friends, is not a tame God. Jesus is not someone that we keep like a pet and ask for help when we need Him. The shirts that were popular in high school when I was in high school was, Jesus is my homeboy. That is not a good description. Jesus is powerful. The power of His Word is truly fearsome. For He not only creates and heals with His Word, but He destroys His enemies with powerful fury. And in the face of such a display of sovereign power, what can we say? You and I sitting in this school, what can you and I say to this? What can we do? Well, look at verse 9 of Psalm 29. 
in His temple all cry glory. In other words, when we answer the call of worship that David gave to us in the first two verses, we gather together in this place on Sunday mornings. We gather together in our Thursday night prayer meetings and we shout glory. We praise God. We worship God. We adore God in humble recognition for His power, for His greatness, for His sovereignty, but also for His grace. Look back at verse 9 again and tell me, where do we cry glory? Where does it say? Temple. In His temple. It's right there, right? Yeah, okay. Just make sure. <laughs> in His temple. Why is this important? What in the world am I referring to? Well, because the temple is where God dwelt with His people. Think about it. This amazing God of awesome power exercised His power in such a way that He made Himself to dwell and to be with His people. This God who shakes the earth and created all things and destroys. He has the ability to create and ability to destroy. He is so powerful that we cannot stand in His presence or we will be eliminated. This God made a way for Him to dwell with us. And as the people of God sang this psalm, they were reminded of the juxtaposition of ideas here. They were reminded that this amazing and powerful God, the God of the Bible, is enthroned over everyone and everything, yet this powerful and glorious God is not distant. He is not absent. He is not far off. He is near. He is present with His people. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it specifies that Psalm 29 was to be sung at different times of the worship calendar. And this is really interesting and significant. Hang with me. In the beginning, early on, Psalm 29 was to be sung during the festival that took place in the fall. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles, which was essentially a big camping trip. All of God's people would leave their homes, they would journey to Jerusalem, and they would pop up little tents, and they would live in them for a week, and they would celebrate, and they would sing, and they would eat. And during this week, they would celebrate the fact that God was their true home. It was pointing back to God's presence with His people when they were in the wilderness after they had left Egypt. And as they were wandering in the wilderness, God was present with them, not only through the pillar of fire and the, the cloud, but within the, the, temp, the, uh, the tent in which they made, God was present. And so this was pointing back to that time, and they would celebrate every year. They would celebrate this. Before they had homes, they would remember. Before they had land, when they were wandering in the wilderness, they celebrated the fact that God was with them. God was their home. And this feast annually pointed forward to the day. It didn't just point back, but it pointed forward to the day when God would dwell once again with His people forever. In other words, as they sang Psalm 29, they were reminded of the fact that God sustained them, He preserved them, He took care of them, and one day God was going to return and dwell with them forever. So with this in mind, consider again John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. This little word dwelt is the same word as tabernacle. In other words, what the Feast of Tabernacles was pointing to has taken place. 
The voice of the Lord has taken on flesh and blood. You see, no longer is the glory of God only seen in the thunderstorm and only seen in the power of the ocean or in the shaking of the earth, but the glory of God has taken up residence in a man, Jesus Christ, which leads us to our third and final movement, and we're almost done. Thank you for the way you're listening. Number three, the calm. The calm. Verse 11, the final verse says, The Lord gives His people strength. The Lord blesses His people with peace. Brothers and sisters, the promise of strength here in verse 11 and peace has been given to us through Christ Jesus our Lord, the Prince of Peace. This God who breaks the cedars will break every enemy who lifts Himself up against Jesus Christ and His church. And through Christ, God will bless us with peace. Now, consider that sometime in the New Testament, the rabbis changed the worship order. They moved Psalm 29 from being sung at the Feast of Tabernacles to being sung at the Feast of Pentecost. Why are you telling us this, John? History. We're not in history class. Um, This is what happens at at Pentecost. Let's read Acts chapter 2. Verse 1 through 7, it says, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that were separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different, lang- in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them speaking in his own language is what they heard. They were astounded and amazed, saying, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. Imagine this scene with me. The feast of Pentecost has taken place, and down the street in the temple of Jerusalem, the Jewish people would have been gathered to celebrate this feast of Pentecost, likely singing the very words of Psalm 29. The Lord, uh, voice of the Lord thunders. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. And as they sung these words, the voice of the Lord was coming down, down the street on Christians in a whole new way. The voice of the Lord that snapped the giant trees and made the earth shake now dwells in ordinary Christians from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation who are filled with the Holy Spirit and are sent out to proclaim the good news of the Gospel. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to go to a place to find the glory of God because by grace, through faith, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, glory has found you. You don't have to search for glory because if you're God's child, glory has found you and dwells within you and is empowering you to live lives of holiness and to live lives on mission, to be intentional, to share the Gospel and lead other people to Christ. Friends, it's only in God that you will find the rest and the calmness of heart that we spend so much time searching for in lesser glories. This morning... Turn from searching for fulfillment in lesser glories and turn to Christ. Turn to Christ by remembering verse 11. The Lord gives His people strength. The Lord blesses His people with peace. In other words, the Lord will give you strength to pursue Him. The Lord will bless you with peace. 
He will bless you with gospel rest, with a calmness of heart, and a security of heart that knows that your salvation is secure because it's not based on anything that you've done or how awesome you are, but it's based on this mighty, powerful God and what He has done. It's based on what Jesus has accomplished. And so as we read and study Psalm 29, the only appropriate response is to praise Him, to worship Him, To model our entire lives surrendered to Him. That every decision and priority and everything that we do would be filtered through Him. The God who is your hope. The God who knows everything, rules everything, has power over everything. God who is a God of awesome grace and mercy, who came not only to reveal the God of glory as He walked here on earth, but to free us from the slavery of sin and death. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Jesus. Maybe you've not trust in the glory that can only be found in the Lord. And maybe right now you feel like you're in the middle of a storm as God is shaking the foundations of your soul. Don't run inside. Don't flee from the storm. Do not take shelter, but step into the rain and get drenched with the beauty of God's love and His mercy and His grace. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus and find complete rest and calm for your soul today. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the fact that You are not distant, but You are near. You're so powerful and mighty and awesome. We can't even comprehend the depths of Your majesty. Yet, God, You've made a way that to, to be with us and dwell with us through Your Son, Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection, You've reconciled us to Yourself. And not only have You reconciled us to Yourself, but You reconciled us to each other as brothers and sisters, this gift called the church that You've given us. And when we gather together like we are today, and as we sing Gospel songs over one another and sit underneath the counsel of Your Word and gather around the fellowship of Your table, God, something extraordinary happens in this place. People move from death to life. Chains of addiction fall off. God, You are doing amazing work and help us to not lose sight of the call that You've given to us, the purpose in which You've given to each and every one of us, which is to bring glory to Your name, to surrender to You as Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that You would be glorified through our lives individually and also through the life of Mission Church. We love You and we thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. We now have an opportunity